We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today, verses 16 through 18. It was just made aware to me, literally 20 seconds ago, that we are talking about fasting today in the most gluttonous holiday of the year. So, that really wasn't intentional, but I guess the Lord wants to say something to us about that today. So, today is our final passage in our study of the Lord's Prayer. And while we're not discussing the the formal Lord's Prayer, we decided to go ahead and continue out Jesus' teaching. And so it concludes with the subject of fasting. And throughout this whole little section of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has been talking about religious behaviors that are used in ways that are not honoring to him. First, he, gave, he talked about almsgiving, which is the idea of giving to the needy. Then he talked about prayer. And now he closes it by discussing fasting. So he is contrasting the behaviors of hypocrites from those that are truly acting and performing these religious rituals because they actually desire to be closer to the Lord. Now, as we discuss the topic of fasting, in the West, fasting is not a very popular spiritual discipline. You go to other parts of the world, though, and fasting is actually quite significant. But what does the Bible actually teach us about the subject of fasting? The New Testament actually doesn't provide a lot of explicit instruction on the subject of fasting. We know that Jesus fasted during his temptation in the wilderness, but we actually have no other record of him fasting at other times in the New Testament. That doesn't mean that he didn't. It doesn't mean that he didn't prioritize it, but we don't have tangible evidence of him fasting outside of the temptation in the wilderness. But as you keep moving along through the New Testament, you do see in the book of Acts two specific occasions where the disciples and the apostles are fasting. The first one is Acts chapter 13, verse 2. It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me... Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So we see the church fasting as it's getting ready to send out the first missionaries. And then in Acts 14, verse 23, we read this. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we do see evidence throughout the New Testament of fasting. It's just not discussed in large measure. For instance, we find examples in Paul, where he actually talks about fasting. But he's actually not talking about it in the sense of intentionally abstaining from food, but rather about not being fed. So while we have evidence in the New Testament, it's actually not as strong as what we find in the Old Testament. And if you go back to the Old Testament, you find that there is a very specific fasting that occurs during the Day of Atonement. And later, when Israel is sent off into Babylon captivity in exile, they begin to add in additional days where they fast and they long to hear from the Lord. Now by the time you get into the first century, the time of Jesus... There are some Jews that are participating in weekly fasts. Some Jews every Monday and every Thursday were participating in fasts. 
And that's probably who Jesus is referring to in this passage. But many of the people in Jesus' day that fasted every Monday and every Thursday were doing it out of religious ritual rather than because they desired true intimacy with the Father. So as we talk about the issue of fasting today, the points are very simple and they sort of rhyme. The first one is we should not fast for show. And then number two, we should fast to know. We should not fast for show, but we should fast to know. So I'm going to read Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Number one, we should not fast for show. Now, the text is very clear here that Jesus is under the impression that his followers will make fasting a regular part of following after him. That's why you see in the text, Jesus uses the phrase, when you fast. Not if you fast, not when I command you to fast, but it is implied in Jesus' teaching here that Christians will make fasting one of the spiritual disciplines that they engage in. So this begs the question, especially for us as American Christians, why then do we, generally speaking, not fast? Is it a regular spiritual discipline in your life? And I have one reason why I think we don't. And I think, if we're being honest, we really love food in America. I mean, love it. I'm not ashamed to tell you that at some point I get to the end of my day and the only thing that I'm looking forward to is that glass of chocolate milk or that sleeve of Oreos. It's the highlight of my day. And that's not a good thing. That actually shows you that at times food can become a god. It can become the thing that we want and think about and it consumes us more than anything else. When Paul is teaching in Philippians chapter 3, when he's describing those enemies of Christ, he says their God is their belly. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's be real. As American Christians, many times our God is our belly. What keeps us going is the food that we eat. What wakes us up in the morning is that breakfast that we're about to eat. So often, we find our identity and our happiness far too often in the things that we eat. But in spite of our love for food, the text does indicate that fasting should be a practice that God's people use to enhance their intimacy with the Lord. But Jesus has strong words for the people that he's teaching in this passage. He points out that there are actually hypocrites that exist that were basically showing off their fasting. 
They were looking gloomy. They were looking disfigured. Now, no doubt, fasting can cause us to have a physical reaction. But many of these hypocrites were playing it up big time. They wanted people to see them looking miserable and gloomy with disfigured faces. And they wanted people to see it because they wanted them to look at them and say, Look how spiritual I am. They wanted to be seen by others. They wanted others to be impressed by their piety and their holiness. Now in the context of this passage, the issue is fasting. But we addressed earlier that prayer can be used as another way to show off our spirituality. Whether it be fasting, whether it be prayer, any spiritual discipline can be used in a way to actually make people be impressed with us. We all know people who show up even at church on Sunday for the mere purpose of other people seeing them at church. This happened in Jesus' day, and it happens in 2022. My wife went to Samford, and one of the funniest things that she ever told me about her time at Samford was that many times people on Sunday, they would meet for lunch in the cafeteria, but many would go and get dressed up to go to lunch in the cafeteria. They had not gone to church, but they wanted to give the appearance to everyone in the cafeteria that they just got done with church. So I'm not just picking on Samford. This happens in churches all across America. Some of you came to church today possibly just so that you would be dressed up when you go to lunch so that others could see that you went to church. That's human nature. We all fall for those types of things. We all are guilty at times of performing spiritual disciplines not with the intent of actually desiring intimacy with God but for pleasing man. And we have to guard our hearts against that. Some show up just to please a spouse. Some show up just to please their parents or their grandparents. Now, I want to say this. In spite of those who show up for the wrong reason or participate in spiritual disciplines for the wrong reason, there is one thing I know to be true. God's Word can still work through that. I love Isaiah teaching us in chapter 55, he says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed In the thing for which I sent it. Weary parents in the room who are fighting battles with their kids every week about going to church, remember these verses. Every time your child hears the word of God proclaimed, it does not return empty. And it will accomplish that for which God purposes. Weary husbands, weary wives who drag their unbelieving spouse to church every single week, even though they care nothing about the preaching of God's word or the singing of God's people, God's word can still work. So don't give up. Keep bringing your spouse to church. Keep bringing your children 
to church, God can work in spite of our impure motives. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Isn't the point of what Jesus is teaching here, guarding against doing things with the wrong motive? You're correct. He is teaching that. But the wrong intentions or wrong motives that we can bring to fasting, to prayer, to church attendance, or Bible reading are not reasons to stop engaging in those disciplines. Do you see Jesus in this text telling the hypocrites to stop fasting? He doesn't tell them to stop fasting. He's challenging them to make sure that they do it with the right motive. No, the act of fasting is a good thing. Reading the Bible is a good thing. Don't stop doing it because your motives aren't pure. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your motives as you read the Word of God. Prayer is a good thing. Don't stop doing it because you don't have the right motives. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart as you go through the spiritual discipline of praying. Going to church is a good thing. And if you don't want to be here, allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart as you gather with God's people every week. So in my opinion, it's never a good idea to stop doing the things that you know are helpful for you, even if your motive is impure. Because in reality, brothers and sisters, all of our motives are impure in some sense. Because we are full of sin and wickedness. When my alarm goes off every morning at 5 o'clock to go to the gym, I hate it. I don't want to get up. It would be so much easier to slam it shut. But I have a fellow church member who's there every morning throwing up 500 pounds on the bench press. And so I have to make sure that I hold him accountable. Right? So there are many things that we do that we just do because we know we're supposed to do them. And while ideally we would have the pure motives all of the time, don't stop doing the things that you know you're supposed to do just because your motives aren't pure. Allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart as you do the things that you know you're supposed to do. The hypocrites in this passage, they received, Jesus says, exactly what they wanted to receive. And it was the praise of man. When they looked gloomy, when they had these faces that were disfigured, the only reason they did that was so that man would look at them and say, wow, that person is super impressive. That person is super spiritual. But we know that the praise of man is always fleeting. It cannot sustain you for the long haul. So when you fast, not if you fast, brothers and sisters, you should fast. I'm not going to stand up here and put a calendar of fasting out for you, but Jesus is clear in this passage. Fasting should be something that we do. And when you fast, do not do it for show. No one really needs to know that you're fasting. Just do it. Because the whole point of why you're doing it is to enhance your relationship with God. It's not really for anyone else to know about. So when you fast, do not fast for show. But when you fast, fast to know. When we fast, we should do so because we depend on God, not food, for our sustenance daily. Now I think we have to be careful 
with any spiritual discipline, fasting included, that we do not look at fasting as some type of magical spiritual discipline for God to give us what we're asking for. For example, Ian Murray's a historian. He's written a lot through the years. He wrote a book some years ago called Revival and Revivalism. And in that book, what he's doing is he's tracing the difference between the first great awakening and the second great awakening in America. The first great awakening took place roughly between the years 1735-1740. You know about it. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the Spirit of God broke out in a very, very powerful way. The first great awakening was characterized by preaching on the holiness of God, the severity and the gravity of man's sin, man's enslavement to sin, and the need for the Holy Spirit to bring new life. This movement, Murray says, was a true revival, which God brought about, causing evangelism to bear great fruit. Thus, he says, revival is a gift of God brought about through the abundance of His grace towards us. But we know that there was also a second great awakening. And this great awakening was a little different. Roughly around the 1820s, a shift happened within American evangelicalism. The first shift, he says, was a doctrinal shift where conversion became more about a person's decision to repent and believe instead of the Holy Spirit awakening within that person a desire to repent and believe. That doctrinal shift, he said, was man-centered rather than God-centered. And you know what started to happen as a result? Pastors began to come up with ways to manufacture people coming to faith in Christ. The most famous example of this, you know, is the anxious bench or the anxious seat that was used by Charles Finney where people could go and sit in the service who were contemplating their spiritual condition. So pastors began, in a sense, to manipulate conversions. And this was very much man-centered. Here's the problem with that. And by the way, that's what Murray calls revivalism. This is the idea of man coming up with ways to ensure that people are converted. As if man can come up with any way to convert one another. It is not the role of human beings to convert souls. It is the role of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a complete act of God, whereby He changes a person's heart and brings them from darkness to light. So the gospel is what changes hearts, not the persuasive techniques or the inventions of man. And if we're not careful, we can view fasting, we can view Bible reading, we can view anything as the thing that will ensure that someone comes to faith in Christ. If we only played these certain songs in worship, that would guarantee that people would come to faith in Christ. If we only all dressed casually to church, that would ensure that thousands and thousands of people will come to faith in Christ. 
I'm not against fasting. I'm not against new songs. I'm not against wearing jeans. But we always have to remember what moves people from darkness to life is the Holy Spirit. Through His Word. So I guess I should take that back. Bible reading, yes, would actually change hearts. The Reformers used to talk about, and some still do, the ordinary means of grace. That is, what actually changes people's hearts? It's the Bible. It's baptism. It's celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's the proclamation week in and week out of God's Word. Those are the ordinary means of grace by which God transfers people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That should cause you, brothers and sisters, to just take a deep breath and realize that you are not responsible for the growth of Christ's church. So we make this the main character of the service every single week. And we allow God's word to speak to us as we read it, as we sing it, as we pray it. Because what do lost people really need? They need the word of God. That's what changes hearts. And for many people in the second great awakening here in America, it became to be about everything else. And the Word of God became a secondary part of the worship service. It began to be more about manipulation and emotionalism rather than just presenting God's Word and faithfully teaching it week in and week out. And fasting can be sometimes that magical discipline that we think that if everyone fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then God's Spirit would pour out on America. It might, but it also might not. No spiritual discipline is the silver bullet for God working in his church. If the Lord leads you to fast for a day, by all means, fast. If he leads you to fast for 40 days, by all means, fast. But don't assume that because you engage in fasting or any spiritual discipline that that automatically means God will answer our prayers the way that we want him to answer them. Fast because you desire God. Fast because you want intimacy with him. Jesus says that when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. These were regular cosmetic practices that everyone in the first century participated in. And by the way, you should participate in regularly washing your face as well. Jesus is teaching his followers that when you fast, you should not try to act differently or look differently than other people. The goal is not to be seen or to be noticed by others as you practice that discipline. Because you know what the reward for fasting is? God. That's the reward for fasting. When you are hungry, when you are thirsty, and all of your mind is turned towards that food or that drink, in fasting, your mind now turns to God and His provision for you and what He has done for you. 
So instead of focusing on that next meal for temporary satisfaction from hunger, the reward in fasting is feasting on the intimacy that we as Christians can have with God. So why should we fast? The first answer is very easy. Because Jesus assumes that we will. The gospel, though, should compel us to fast. Everyone in this room that is in Christ today has been given direct access to God. And fasting is a way to enhance, in a sense, that access to Him. While Jesus was dying on the cross for the sins of His people, enduring pain and insults, And heartache, he cried out to his father and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken and abandoned by his father because of our sins. Our sins were transferred to him on the cross and he experienced the full wrath of God in our place. His forsakenness on the cross is what gives us, all followers of Christ, access to God. While we abstain from food and drink in order to enhance intimacy with the Father, Jesus lost all intimacy with His Father on the cross. He abandoned intimacy So that you and I, if we're in Christ and have repented of our sin and believed in faith, could have direct access and intimacy with the Father. Thus, when we practice fasting, it should lead us to remember what Christ endured on our behalf. When we hunger and thirst for food and drink, we remember that our physical needs pale in comparison to the physical torture that Jesus endured for our behalf, in our place for our sins. So fasting should lead us to meditate on the truths of the gospel. And as we approach this season of thanksgiving, may our hearts and minds be focused on the wonder of salvation through Jesus Christ. And if you're here today, you have never received by God's grace, through faith, a relationship with Christ Jesus, I invite you to receive it today. Turn from your sin. Come to Christ. Believe in faith in the finished work of His Son on the cross for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the words of Jesus here. I want to ask your forgiveness in my own life when I have participated in spiritual disciplines with impure motives and with wrong intentions. As sinful human beings, we're prone to do that. But we desire to know you deeply. And fasting is a way for us to have concentrated time and effort and reflecting on the good news of the gospel and your attributes and your love for us. So we thank you for Jesus' teaching here that reminds us about this important spiritual discipline.
But most importantly, we thank you for sending Jesus to live the life that we were incapable of living in our place. He was faithful all the way till the end. And now he is seated at the right hand of you. So we're in awe of his holiness and his majesty and his grace and his mercy that he bestows on all of those who repent and believe in faith. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.